Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest. This week, Sue Gordon, the former Principal Deputy Director of National Intelligence and longtime Intelligence Community Officer on Leadership, Sports, and Intelligence Innovation. Sophomore year, you're made captain. But you didn't even start enough games <laughs> to earn a letter. I know. How does that happen? I I don't know. They should have given me a letter. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> I think it's fair to say that that message of humility was what really hooked the president. Well, what really <laughs> hooked him was he asked who was going to win the final four. And mm-hmm. I said, well, you got to think UConn's odds on favorite, but I don't think so. I think they'll lose in the semifinals. And his last words to me were, well, I guess we're going to find out if you're a good intelligence officer. And the interview was over. Sue, welcome to Chatter. Thank you. Let's Start out with a dim recollection of mine, and I don't know where I pulled this, but it was from a long time ago, maybe in conversation with you, maybe from reading something about you. But as I recall, you decided to go to Duke University because of its then unusual marine biology program. Is that right? Yeah. What, what, I, what spurred your interest in marine biology? Well, I'm a woman of my generation. If you are in my demographic group, your Sundays were Mutual of Omaha Wild Kingdom, mm. the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau, and the wonderful world of Disney. What's not to like? Right. And I decided in about ninth grade, I had an amazing junior high science teacher named Mrs. Parsons. And I decided I was going to be a scientist. And then I decided I was going to be a world famous aquanaut. Mm. That's a good title, too. I know, right? Aquanaut. Yeah, the world-famous part is the best. Isn't it amazing the difference a teacher can make? Yeah, oh, totally. You know, turning you on at the right time. For me, it was a, a social studies, a government teacher, yeah. and I knew I was going to do something involving politics or international affairs, but it could be a science teacher at the right time. Yeah, and, and I was a Navy kid, so I had lots of teachers, but Judy stuck out, and she let us call her Judy, which I think also just kind of inspired me to think that we weren't just going to school. We were... Hmm. Uh, fellow travelers. I don't know. It was wonderful. But that's when I decided. Yeah. So I thought I would go into marine marine biology. There weren't many schools that had a program. Um, Did Duke have the Beaufort campus then? It did, right? You can be on the water. You can be on the water. water. Yeah, yeah. Spring semesters at Beaufort. And then I made the basketball team and I never had a spring semester free. So you mentioned being a Navy kid. Where did you... Did you bounce around a lot, or were you mostly Washington-based? No. Dad was um, a destroyman, so a, a surface officer. And, you know, through the 60s and 70s, the military wasn't thinking about either economy or families. They were thinking about where they needed people. So we moved every year and a half. So let's see if I can quickly go. I was born in Knoxville because Dad was on deployment. We moved to Boston. Uh, then we moved to Palo Alto, where he got his master's in international relations at Stanford with uh, a classmate, Jim Stockdale. So we were huh. friends of the Stockdales. And then we went to from California to Mayport, Florida, to Charleston, South Carolina, um, up to Washington, out to Seattle, down to Long Beach, uh, over to Norfolk, down to Puerto Rico. Oh, oh I'm sorry, to Washington, to Puerto Rico, to Norfolk. And then I went to Duke, and I finally got to be somewhere for four years. That's strange, isn't it? Most people (laughs) go to college, and they're moving away for the first time. You're thinking, this is stability for a few years. Yeah. 
So how did that career in marine biology work out? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so I still majored in science. Mm-hmm. Um, I majored in zoology. Uh, I Again, the power of teachers. Uh, my advisor uh, was the chairman of the zoology department, a guy named Steve Wainwright, another guy that had you call him by his first name. Interesting. Uh, and he taught a class called functional morphology. That's how structure relates to function in animals. And I was in love, right? This was, this was everything I wanted, the kind of mystery of life of biology plus the uh, engineering side of it. Right. And, and so, you know, it, what I thought I was going to do I stayed in the sciences. I stayed in the life sciences. It became much more mm-hmm. engineering-based. What are the job prospects? I have to admit <laughs> complete ignorance of many things. You know that. But uh, total ignorance of the job prospects for a zoology degree. What do you – do you actually go to zoos or – You can. Or do you go to a Ph.D. program so you can teach yeah. zoology to other people who will become teachers of zoology? Yeah. So most zoo majors at Duke uh, were pre-med. Interesting, I just had no interest at all in being doctor. Um, my now husband, then boyfriend, was also a zoo major at Duke who did mm-hmm. want to become a doctor, but as he says, no one told him that he had to get good grades. Um, so I think what you do is is most are pre-med. Uh, a PhD is really the path that you have to go down if you want to really practice in the scientists mm-hmm. sciences. You can go down the animal side and, and work in zoos. Um, but again, I wasn't so much into the animals as I was into the function and the engineering and the structures. Which really is interesting. It's it really a, is. It is about it, the analysis, the engineering, and the the thought process more than loving and hugging animals then. Right. For me, for me it was. It was just... Um, there are just so many things about how living systems are designed. Uh, I just, I just, I just loved it, and I thought I was going to go get my PhD. So your question is, what does someone who goes into zoology that doesn't want to be a doctor do? Keep going in school. <laughs> yeah, and I, I then thought, oh, I'll go out to the Colorado Training Center and I'll study performance of athletes and how you oh. can optimize that. I thought that would be cool. You bring up athletes. What was your experience with sports in life up to? your admittance to Duke? So, um, you know, I just, uh, I love sports. Um, I love exertion. I love testing yourself. I like competition, but I like seeing how good I can be even more than I like beating somebody. I'm, I'm I'm not really into world domination, but I do like seeing how good I can be. Um, and so, and so I grew up playing everything um, and uh, played every sport in high school, um, was, was pretty good at it. Uh, when I was going to Duke, uh, there weren't scholarships for girls, even though Title IX uh, was signed in 1972. That doesn't mean that there were a lot of opportunities mm-hmm. Yeah, so I went to Duke. I thought, oh, we'll see what they have there to play. My college, my high school basketball coach said, Sue, you're not, you're not good enough to play in college, so you might want to learn to be a ref. And then it turned out I made the team. So uh, Was there another sport you were considering trying in college? Oh, I was, if not basketball? I, was, I was way better at softball than I was at basketball, but Duke didn't have softball. Oh. I was probably better at soccer than I was at basketball and Duke didn't have soccer. I mean, there just weren't that many sports. What a different world. Yeah. It really so is. I, you know, so I played basketball. I, 
you know, I've talked about this before. I love, I love what sports give you. Mm-hmm. I think that they teach you how to be depended on and how to depend on others, and those are two really important skills. They learn, they teach you how to compete without being in conflict. Um, and I think if you do it right, they teach you how to exert to failure um, rather than holding something back. Mm-hmm. And I think all of those things, if we were going to be really metaphysical, translate really well into the workplace. Absolutely. I want And I want to dig into that in, in some detail. But there, there seems to me to be a difference there between a team sport like basketball and a team sport like softball, where softball, yes, you're a team. And for some, especially defensive play, you, you have to have some work as a team. But you could be successful and be a successful member of a baseball or softball team and never actually have an interaction with another defensive player by making your catches in the outfield and there's no one on base you have to throw in to try to make the catch. Uh, Or maybe you're just a hitter, right? So it seems different than basketball where you can't really function unless you are fully integrated as a team. Do you see a difference there or am I overanalyzing this? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I tend to overanalyze everything, so I could go anywhere with you on that. But I, um, no, I'll go back to again. In sports, you must hold your respect. You must perform your responsibility superbly. You you must. You you have to be good at what you're doing, and. You have to contribute to the overall success of the endeavor. So basketball, it's more obvious, um, and you're more in motion. But a, a softball, if you're a first baseman and the third baseman makes an imperfect throw, do you go, "Hey, sucks to be you. I'm not. I'm not bending down," or is part of your excellence to go um, and do that when you're a hitter uh, in softball? Um, and your team needs one run, uh, do you sacrifice so the run one scores, or do you get the home run to pad your stats? So I think Mm -hmm. that there is this kind of yin and yang in every sport about, every team sport, which is I must be excellent, Mm -hmm. and my excellence is not not the point. Right. And that that is a distinction with the purely individual Mm -hmm. sports. Now, you, you still get some of what you talked about, which is that individual drive for success, the exertion, the oh, how totally. far can I push myself? So you would still be satisfied with that part of it, but it's not for the greater goal. You're not part of a, an integrated mission when you're working as, let's say, what I did, tennis. I was yeah. just, I, and I rarely even played doubles. It was, it was mostly me. and <laughs> You I, wanted to rely on you. And I was failing, and that was on me, and I had to improve. Yeah. But Yes, we, I would let the team down because we were doing schools versus schools and you rack up the numbers of wins and losses and the, the, the team wins or loses. But it really felt much more of an individual thing. Yeah, Whereas probably. team sports, when, when you play them, if you're playing them right, you don't have the sense of the spotlight's on me. You have the sense of the spotlight is on everyone and I need to help them perfect what they're doing. Yeah. You know, just as you were saying that, I was reminded of my – interview with former president trump that's often what comes up in sports conversations no it was it was how does that i know it it was unusual um in that uh it was before i'd even been nominated i was meeting him for the first time and 
I was introduced to him, and Dan Coates, you know, the head of presidential personnel, said, this is Sue. I've interviewed her. I've talked about her. She's pretty good. Dan Coates said, Sue's well-respected in the intelligence community. Had Dan Coates been nominated yet? Yeah, he was already, okay. in, the, he was already in the job. Got it. Uh, they were waiting for me. You know, like every administration, yeah, you you fill them in order. Sure. And um, and he said, and she was the three-time captain of the Duke women's basketball team. And the president says to me, well, you are tall. And I said, Mr. President, I'm 1976 tall. I am not <laughs> 2017 tall. And he said, well, you're right. I know Brittany Griner, and she's like 6'9". Okay, now let's think about that. We know now that he does not read his talking points. So what follows then is a conversation about women's basketball. He said, why does UConn always win? And I said, ah, and this is getting back to your point. I said, because Gino knows three things. One, he can get any player he wants. Right. Talent is a part of it. Right. Two, he's smart enough to hire humble talent. Mm. And so I think that's the point about when you see magical teams. Mm-hmm. Not just good teams, but teams that tend to win over and over because winning is is ultimately magical. Mm-hmm. Um, it has to do with is the talent humble? Does it know that it's something more than it? And and you've seen almost great teams with massively great players that something's missing. It's usually that humility of the players to be able to sacrifice some for all. And I think it's fair to say that that message of humility was what really hooked the president. Well, what really hooked him was he asked who was going to win the Final Four that was coming up the next meeting. And mm-hmm. I said, well, you got to think UConn's odds are not in favorite, but I don't think so. I think they'll lose in the semifinals. And his last words to me were, well, I guess we're going to find out if you're a good intelligence officer. And the interview was over. We never had one conversation about national security, not about the position. We had a whole conversation about basketball. Hmm. So UConn lost in the semifinals, so who knows why, why I got the job. Something worked. <laughs> so you mentioned three-time captain of the Duke basketball team. That's highly unusual, and I don't know if it's unique. I haven't done research into the history of captainships, but that is highly unusual. and Especially in a four-year Absolutely. Career, absolutely. Yeah. So here you are. You've, you've played as a freshman. Um, you are not— the star of the team by your own admission. Um, but suddenly you are a captain the next year. How, how does that happen? Uh, I have no idea. What did they say they saw in you? My teams, my teammates to this day would probably say, what are you talking about? Of course you had to be captain. I, I, I don't know. I, I think um, we had a brand new coach. She was awfully young. Uh, Duke. While it was starting to do scholarships, it was pretty far away from supporting women's sports. And so it was a really difficult environment for this young coach with this kind of still ragtag team. Were you and even playing on West Campus yet at the time you got uh, there? My sophomore year, by my second year, we did. You were over on East Campus yeah, until then? Yeah, hmm. um, And I think maybe what I offered was – Someone who worked hard, didn't ask much, and then tried to help the team not fly apart because you've played enough sports to know that when you're not winning, it is really hard to not just implode. And we mm-hmm. were 2-12 and 12 my freshman year, 1-19 yeah. my sophomore year. Yeah. 
so maybe maybe what I did was worked hard, didn't ask for much, and tried to offer something. In in the intelligence business, we are often asked to identify and explain anomalies. I've got one for you. You know, sophomore year, you're made captain, but you didn't even start enough games <laughs> to earn a letter. I know. How does that happen? I I don't know. They should have given me a letter. That's my story, and I'm sticking to, <laughs> <laughs> sticking to it. Um, no, that was criteria. Half the quarters you had to play in, and I simply didn't. So yeah. I was named at the beginning of the season. Maybe my teammates thought that I'd actually play in a few more games. Um, if I look back, honestly, uh, I was probably good enough and worked hard enough to be on the team, but I didn't. Basketball itself wasn't so important to me that all I did in the summers mm. was work on my right. game. Right. Right. If I if I look back on it, right. I think I was talented athletically enough. I was not as good as basketball players as we kept on bringing in. And I think while I worked, I didn't work as hard as I might have to get more hmm. playing time. But I did still bring, I think, the, the talents that I did have. I think you'll agree that leadership – isn't synonymous with uh, success, but but it's hard to have one without the other consistently. So before you came to Duke, the women's team was actually 0-14, and then you got there, and sure enough, you got that 2-12 <laughs> season going in. But by the 1979-80 season, you had a winning record we and did. fourth place in the, in the women's tournament that year. What happened? What, what leadership was going on at the coaching level, at the captain's level, that, that took what was, by all means, a failing program. I don't want to use a failed program, but 0-14, it's hard to put another label on it. A program that wasn't working in terms of its stated mission, which is to win games. What got you from there to where the program was when you left? Um, so um, they actually hired a basketball coach rather than a PE teacher who coached the team. <laughs> Um, she was a determined individual and she fought the administration to try and get us everything from shoes the school paid for to, uh, more money for road trips to just other services. So she, in addition to being driven on basketball, she was fighting the administration to try and make women's basketball take hold. And we started getting scholarships. So my sophomore year, in come three players that the new coach, I don't think, was the responsible for. They were recruited and given money sight unseen, but one of them was a woman named Tara McCarthy mm -hmm. from a sweet shoot New Yorker uh, and all that that implies. And she was, she, I mean, she could play, David. Yeah. And and then after that started getting more girls that were not, you know, I was a jock that could play, every, play everything. And I still to this day tell my teammates, I could have beaten you in any 10 sport marathon, but they could play basketball and they mm. played basketball. So much so that by my senior year, we had five, girls come in, all of whom can play, including some really transformative players um, who were just the kind of competitors we need. So I think what happened was it, it was just that time. We had a coach that wanted to build the program. 
She brought in players that were better, and we just and and then the players got along and wanted the same outcome. But you point out that the coach wasn't just a leader in practice, wasn't just a leader in the game time situations, but you had a window on the leadership in terms of getting resources for the team, in terms of managing up, if you will. Um, talk about that. Talk about the lesson you learned, because that's an, that's an early experience to get that. Most people don't get that until they're in a formal work environment to learn that management and leadership can be tied to things that have absolutely nothing to do with interacting directly with subordinates, that it actually has to do with working on their behalf behind the scenes, sometimes without their knowledge. You had a window on that quite early. Yeah, I, I think actually what I'm doing is I'm reflecting based on what I learned over the course of my career. I think I was just as naive about what successful leadership was, was the trappings. And and Debbie Leonard, our coach, man, she was hard. And she was not always um, – she was young. She was driving us hard and, and – we couldn't understand why she was so stressed. It is only now upon reflection that I look at what she delivered over those four years and now I see how little Duke was compliant. Duke was not embracing us at that point and mm. she delivered that. And so it really is now that I got to be a leader that I look back and say, oh, now now I understand why she was how she was, because she was fighting those battles. At the time that you were captain, what were your leadership responsibilities as you saw them? Uh, to, talk, <laughs> to talk to the team at halftime when our coach was so mad at us that she couldn't. <laughs> that's, a, that's a heavy burden. <laughs> uh, uh, and and, and I, I do think it was to just keep bringing in new players each year and keep everyone believing that we were supposed to perform and be good. I, I don't know that it was much more than that. I think I think maybe, I don't know that it was asked of me, but I do think it's what I delivered, was again, I hated not playing as much as anyone hates not playing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like I was just happy to be on the team and gosh, it was great that another game passed and I didn't get in. Um, but I, I think even then I knew that I wasn't supposed to demand something for me. I was supposed to give something to the cause. And they probably picked up on that. Yeah, probably. Right. Yeah. If, I guess if Sue, who gets nothing, could be this gung-ho, yeah. then, then maybe it's okay. And maybe we're going to get there. And I always thought we could win. I always thought we were going to go better. I always thought we'd win every game. So maybe that was a contribution. Maybe sometimes you just need someone who, can belie who believes. So you didn't have to be in a position of authority in terms of a, a starter, in terms of a uh, person with the most playing time to lead. You could lead in a way that wasn't synonymous with what we would now call management. Right. How frustrating it has it been to you throughout your career? to hear people so often conflate leadership and management, that managers are leaders, and to assume that people only need to think about being a leader if they are in some kind of executive or management position. I, I think it's all about, I think leadership is ultimately about whatever role you have, playing it on the two planes that we talked about. Mm -hmm. One is 
holding your space, doing your piece really well. And then the second is saying, yeah, but you know, the, what the nation needs is not just my job. It needs something bigger. And so I have to play it into it. So I, I think leadership ultimately can be affected at every level mm-hmm. by understanding that you are both simultaneously, both need to be excellent and you're both part of something larger. I think when the leadership and management aspect comes in, there are more than one function that a leader performs. Uh, leaders establish vision. They create space. Managers also uh, create order and repeatability and ensure resources. So right. they are skills within that. Mm-hmm. But leadership is more about about your the way you ply whatever job you have and delivering both excellence and impact. You've phrased that in a way that's across realms, right? It, it, they're generic terms that could have applied to a career in zoology it could have. or in marine biology. But of course, you went into national security. In your experiences there, whether in the analytic or the SNT sides of CIA or at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, the uh, IOC, to the support directorate at CIA, did you see leaders operating at all levels? And without naming names, what kinds of things did you see from people who weren't necessarily senior managers, but people who were showing exactly what you just talked about, that kind of of integrity and and vision um, at wherever they were in the organizations? So, oh, that's such a great question, such a great point. Um, So one, uh, to my definition of leadership and excellence, it is independent of discipline uh, and learned it especially when I went into support because support can be seen as I will affect whatever you want. Mm-hmm. But support at the agency is I have a craft in these support disciplines and my job is to deliver them to you so that we can have impact, not wait for you to decide, but actually bring my craft to the decision. Um, and some so, of that's, that support, just for people's background who aren't familiar with uh-huh. the director of support, that's everything from finance to physical logistics. Security, to, yeah. personnel, um, facilities, transfer, I mean, just, just everything. But, but again, it, just because it is the, the job has a particular domain doesn't mean it doesn't have the same aspects of leadership, which is excellence and impact. Um, but you were talking about leaders that didn't necessarily have the position mm-hmm. and still demonstrated it. So when I joined the agency, um, I was a GS7, and there was a guy, uh, and I'll, I'll use his name, Dana Sutherland, who was a GS8. Okay, so just yeah. for people who are going aren't savvy. GS7 is pretty low. That's that's kind of the lowest rung a professional comes in. Now I think they come in a bit higher because you can't afford the thirteen to live on the $13,000 a year. <laughs> I did. So I was a 7. Dana was an 8. Gosh, he was everything I wanted to be. He was so smart, uh, so calm, so accomplished, um, really understood what we were doing. And and so I, at some point, we became about the same grade. Because, you know, even if you start a grade apart, you, it stretches out so you'll be the same grade. Mm-hmm. 
And at some point, I passed him and got into higher-level senior jobs. But when I followed Dana's career, his impact was shocking. He took a path that took him across so many disciplines, and in every job, he not only led his women and men, but he delivered impact. And that had nothing to do with the stars on his shoulders. It just had to do. And so if if there's someone that I always wanted to emulate and someone who I talk to people about all the time, it's Dana because he just understood what we were doing. And he played his hand perfectly without worrying about where he was playing his hand from. It was it just it's inspiring. I am so happy to hear that because so much attention when it comes to, to CIA focuses on the case officers and the analysts. And yes, we want to have leadership at all levels in those directorates too. But the most underappreciated of all directorates traditionally has been the directorate of support. And there, I, I think you must have leadership at all levels because of the nature of the work. Yeah. So Dana was actually an analyst, but I can think of now you've now you've brought me back um, in support a job I loved, loved. Uh, what did so, you love about it? Uh, so consequential, um, involved in everything, more operational acts per unit time than any case officer. <laughs> yep. Um, yep. Uh, a culture of service within a culture of service. If you think about that, support officers are really service oriented, and the community is service oriented. But you want to talk about a leader? It's a GS10 logs officer who has been deployed to some piece of red dirt to set up a base in six months, and they are everything from their finance officer to the facilities procurer. And then once that base is established, maybe they're the logs officer, or maybe if the chief of base leaves, they're the chief of base. The leadership of a GS-10 logs officer in the field is, again, just an inspiring vision to me about man, where you are, be as big as you can be, but don't want to be something else. Just be that big. Right, right. And the operators working out of that base can't do their job if that person didn't show leadership at the time of creation. It wouldn't have happened. It would not have. Yeah. So you said you were thinking of other people in the directorate of support that, that had this kind of leadership. So that's that's the like I said that's that's just a prototypical logs officer. I um, uh, oh man, um, finance officers. <laughs> you know, just just thinking. I don't it know, seems like such a thankless job, and yet they have to find ways of doing things because so many operational acts themselves, but the functioning of the right, agency right. to enable the yeah. operational acts. Yeah relies on uh, the finances working exactly right. Right. It does. And and sometimes the finances are in the open. Sometimes they can't be in the open. Sometimes they can't be detected. And it has to be true on all three levels. Mm-hmm. So what I always said about support is it's complex but tractable. Like you can accomplish it. It is a complex field, but it is something that can be accomplished. If I need to get someone who's really close to Putin to be able to tell the secrets that – that is a complex job, and I don't know that I can deliver it, but support is complex and tractable. You know, I've heard 
Coach Krzyzewski, going back to Duke for a moment, I've heard Coach K say, and I think you have said this as well, that excellence doesn't always have the same form. Now, honestly, that's a little bit easier for Coach K because he <laughs> runs the show. He selects the players and personalities and coaches he wants. He usually but not always gets what he wants on all of those fronts. And it's a new mix every year these days for him because of the whole dynamics of players going off to the NBA. So he he has to have excellence taking a new form each year, almost by definition, and he can impose his personality and his lessons learned onto that. It's a little bit harder in a bureaucracy, isn't it? Because we have PARs, performance reviews, that have very explicit statements about what must be done, and employees think they must check the box exactly the same way as it's been done. Or at a bigger level, you have ICD-203, you have <laughs> analytic standards, and they say an analytic product must meet these criteria and it must check these boxes and do it the same way every time or it's not excellent. How do you translate that, that mantra of excellence doesn't always have the same form into a bureaucracy which inherently trends towards bureaucratizing excellence? I think good outcome is immutable. Right, you must deliver good outcome. Over the time, you, bureaucracies tend to codify the best way to deliver good outcome, whether that Hopefully. is what's the yeah. or right avoiding kind the worst of, outcome at right, least. Right. Well, <laughs> that's a whole different discussion. Yeah. I think we have trended too far toward trying to ensure bad things don't happen, rather mm -hmm. than ensuring that good things do, and those things tend to be what we think of as the work. Mm -hmm. Forgetting that they were just a momentary definition of what was needed for the outcome you were trying to produce. And that doesn't mean they're bad. They're not. But they're not the goal. They're not the goal. And so the mistake of bureaucracies or anybody, basketball coaches, bureaucracies, is I think I know what the piece parts are that require an outcome, and I'm going to go looking for all those piece parts, rather than believing their own eyes of, of what delivers outcome. And so it has two manifestations. In the human form, it's called experience. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm going to hire someone to experience in the way we've done it because they're the fastest way to continue to produce that too often missing someone who has all the skills they need and will take you someplace differently if you just give them a chance. So we tend to look for things. And we, and we could have a whole conversation about, about the whole movement of diversity. Mm -hmm. it's, it's saying, I need performance, I need uh, achievement and excellence, and I need aggressiveness. I need all those outcomes, but I do not need them to be achieved in the same way. Right. And so, so in human form, it's can I look at the elements that I need for outcome without saying that experience or one form is the only way. I don't need leadership to look like white Civil War generals. Leadership can look differently than a white mm -hmm. Civil War general. Um, and organizationally, it's imagining what we're trying to do and thinking that I don't have to do it the same way. Uh, let me see if I can. It's the Kodak. It's the Kodak story. Mm. Um, Kodak forgot that what it was trying to do was to make capturing memories as easy as writing with a pencil. Had they remembered that, 
they would have committed to digital, not just invest in digital. Mm. Organizations tend to forget what their mission is, and so they get wedded to it, and they miss the changes that are necessary. So this is a really interesting moment of change, I think, for the intelligence community. And one of the things it needs to let go of is my job is not actually secrecy. My job is national security. What does national security need, and then what do we build to be able to do that? That is an active argument within the leadership of the intelligence community. Some people say we... We are paid to deal with secrets. If you want open source, go watch the TV. Go, go pull up the news wires. Um, we only add value by having secrets. Other people say the mission is to you know, reduce the uncertainty yeah. for decision makers who have to make crucial national security decisions, yeah. and we need to bring everything to the table to do that. Right. I think it's clear where you come down on that. Well, it's just data, yeah. right? And I, and I think I think... It's you need to sell out to be able to get whatever you need, not just say, I have all these really swell collectors that I developed in the Cold War, and they deliver a certain set of thing against an information target that is very different today than it was then. Mm-hmm. So I just think, I think it's to the point of how do you let go of the image of what you think is necessary in order to see that there are other things that, that can achieve it. Do leaders in national security need to understand the details of the domains that they manage and lead in? For Because I'm thinking of things like big data. You have not a generational divide necessarily, mm-hmm. but there's something to that. But there are people who just don't get the idea of what large unstructured data sets can bring to discrete intelligence questions. Can managers effectively lead that? Or do you need more leadership from outside of management to help that enterprise work in the intelligence community? Yeah, so I think you always need expertise. You need experts who can contribute to the, to the outcome you mm-hmm. need. No, no leader will ever know enough because their domain is too big to know everything that needs to be known, to not need people that know a lot more. So you always need expertise. But I think, I think modern leaders better be at least technically, technologically conversant mm. and be capable data swimmers. And, and not because they're going to be the ones designing any of the systems. They're not. And right. They're not going to be making the widgets, but they no, need to they understand shouldn't. what widgets need to be made. And the real reason is, is if they don't, I worry that they will see technology as risk, and that will make them not commit to it. So I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we have kind of nationally right now. It's not just in the intelligence community, the national security community, and probably in business just as well is just the generational divide between the kind of uh, pedigree of the topmost leaders and the domain in which most of the decisions need to be made now. There are ways to get around that, but I think, I think, you gotta f- I think a leader today really has to be technologically conversant, even though I still think critical thinking is the dominant skill of any leader. Critical skill is necessary but not sufficient. Yeah. Yeah. You had a, a case study in this some 20-plus years ago. Uh-oh. Um, in a different... Different domain, different setting, different circumstances, but it gets to some of these points. 
talk about the origins of InQtel. There are so many elements of this story. So George Tennant is the DCIA. Um, and a relatively he, new DCIA at the he time. He was. Coming and in with a lot of new ideas. He, he was. And he, I think he was working on a strategic plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and I think, this is my recollection, uh, he didn't like it. He didn't think it was bold enough. Mm-hmm. So he went to his new director of science and technology, relatively new director of science and technology, Ruth David, an outsider. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was from Sandia, brilliant. Her expertise was in information technology, uh, and she had this idea that we really needed to, the real advantage of the intelligence community would be a thing called an agile intelligence enterprise, and none of us understood what she meant. Like, <laughs> Those are just words. <laughs> yeah, right? But it sounded cool, and George put it in his strategic plan, and he said, go do that. And she... Um, Where were you at the time? I was... I had started an office for that w- was joint between the director of science and technology and the director of analysis, uh, or I think we were called director of intelligence at the time, um, uh, the Office of Advanced Analytic Tools. Mm-hmm. And she called me up and she said, hey, I'd like you to come up with this thing. <laughs> I said, I don't get it. <laughs> She's, she said, no, it's an agile intelligence enterprise, and it's, and it's all IT, and we need to get to Silicon Valley. And I'm like, ah, I still don't get it. Um, and I tell people this all the time. This is a really important real rule for innovators. When you're given a task, you cannot continue to ask for clarifying questions because they will start making it up, and you will be constrained. So I said, okay, because that's what you do. Or if you're in my yeah, generation, you find you, a way. You say, yeah. And I went off. And I had a teeny tiny team, and it took us a, not very long uh, to figure out that we needed to tap into what was happening in Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. but that was going to be really hard with our acquisition cycle, and they were uninterested in working with us. Okay, that's two strikes yeah. right there. So um, we uh, did some research on what models were there that could work. We talked to a bunch of people, and ultimately came up with this idea that we would ask a group of private citizens to form a nonprofit so it wasn't controlled inside the agency. We would um, give what the government can best give, which are hard problems, quest, and deep pockets, money. And we will allow that nonprofit to do what industry does really well, which is to take those things and figure out what to do with it. Mm-hmm. In other words, we were breaking the cycle of overdefining what we needed to do. And the idea was if we could use our money and our vision to keep commercial, keep ideas that were good, but maybe not converse, commercially ready enough to command dollars, if we could keep them alive long enough, they would turn into a commercial products that we could then buy. The big changes um, that we had to get the agency to buy into to do this, uh, because I think you've heard me say this before, you can't get to the future from the present. You have to let go of something. You just can't drag everything that you have right now with you, otherwise you just can't get there. So we gave up three things. We made it unclassified. We gave an independent body, undifferentiated money, and we didn't tell them what to do except to generally solve these problems and go. And um, 
and we decided that the companies could pe- keep the intellectual property. Were you involved in the briefings to Congress about this? Because I was. I can imagine, and I, 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 I'm not pinning this on any individual senator or representative, but just I'm taking the stereotypical uh, anonymized senator and representative <laughs> in my mind, talking to you across a table in the skiff on Capitol Hill, you saying to them, here's this great idea, right? We're going to take, um, the exact amounts probably still aren't out there, but let's say tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. Tens. We're going to put it out there. Um, we're going to give it to people. We're not going to tell them exactly what to do or how to do it, right? No no direct control. And uh, and they're going to get to keep the IP that they come up with. Uh, how does that sound, oversight people? <laughs> yeah. And we're going to pay money again when we want to buy the product that we have invested in. That we in. have invested in. Um, <laughs> how did you get out of that room alive? <laughs> oh, so, so many great lessons about this. Uh, one, the members and George had decided that we were going to do this. So I had a real advantage. He had done his homework. Yeah. I had the money um, from Congress in a top-line ad going into it. So, so I had the director support and I had my huge advantage. Yeah. I still had to go through staffers, and I think some of them hate me to this day because, one, it wasn't their idea. It didn't go through them. Um, two, everything you just said. I think I tried to assure them that because we were going to – form a board that they would trust and that all we had to do if we didn't like what they were doing was not contract with them the next year, mm. that that there really wasn't much risk here. There's still a measure of control and oversight. It's right. just not the typical it's government not the one bureaucracy you think of, way. Yeah. Yeah. And so 21 years later, um, doing some good things. Um, yeah, but, you know, everyone took a leap. And I think it took from my tasking to incorporation seven months. Mm-hmm which I think is an even more exciting story than 11 months for you too. What I like to say is it shows how big we can be, yeah. right, when we need to be. And I think that's, I think that's almost through every one of these leadership stories we've talked about. Mm-hmm. It's about can you convince leaders to be unselfishly big? Right. Resolve for me one piece of arcane historical trivia. I don't think it was Gilman Louie because he was brought in to InQtel. Mm-hmm. He was not there at the planning stages. At some point, you had to name the thing. <laughs> and originally, it wasn't InQtel. It, it was, was slightly not. different. So what was it? And who actually came up with the in, the Q, and what became the tell? Yeah. So <laughs> so my team of of five of us, um, we chose the board. We asked them to come. Fuzzy Krenkard, you know, sealed the deal for us. Norm Augustine agreed to do it. Now we needed to name this. I don't know why, but we somehow thought that a Greek name was was <laughs> a cool. Greek name. Yeah, the, you know, a Greek name that should be cool. I don't know. That was so. You've got to be really careful with which one you choose. Well, okay, you so choose that's Pandora. It. Yeah, so we chose Peleus. Um, Peleus is a great story. I think it was. Um, a god or a minor god that was uh, – he was gifted the right to marry Aphrodite if he could catch her. And she oh. changed forms every time you'd reach out. And what Peleus did was he opened his hand and she alit as a bird. Mm-hmm. 
And we thought, oh, my gosh, this is so great. And that is you actually catch it by not controlling it. Oh, isn't that perfect? So it was actually incorporated under the name Peleus. And then we discovered there's another Peleus myth, which is a horrifying story of death and destruction. So almost instantaneous and needed to go away. We needed a name. So we went to a bar because in uh, D.C. I think it was actually I think it was the bar of the Hay Adams. And we. We went, tried to choose some new names. We ultimately started with Q because we thought, oh, I don't know. You got to have a James Bond book yeah. somewhere. And then um, in for Intel. And mm-hmm. it was, it was then second, it was in Qit. Yeah. Um, and then there was. Was the idea of the IT at the end? Is yeah. Cool intelligence, Q, and IT. Because we thought it would be. Woo-hoo. Yeah. Okay. Agile Intelligence Enterprise and all that. And then Intuit sued them for a name change and became an Intel. So we we actually had the the full legal experience of a of a public entity. That story is everything. I mean, it, it re- really includes everything <laughs> from the bar scene to the lawsuit to the Greek mythology. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, has InQtel? You obviously did not stay with InQtel, but later on in your career, you circled back into positions where you were closer to it than uh-huh. others. How did you think it evolved, and and do you think that it has been a a success story? Uh, I think it's absolutely been successful. Um, if you just if you were to take a look at all the companies that exist today that deliver really good things, not just for the intelligence community but for the government and for society, which was our thesis, right? If if security solutions were driven by the toughest security actors, the intelligence community, mm-hmm. and made available commercially, wouldn't the world be better? And so I think you can look at things from Google Earth to Palantir to Cloudera to Datamine. If you just look at the things right. and many, many more that I can't name, you would say that the thesis of the government investing in, in companies that had a good idea that would advance against the imperatives of the intelligence community would be fundamentally a good thing. Um, and, and, and actually a really good representation of one of the great benefits of government, which is taking the taxpayers' money and then returning value to society. Right. And which- so I think it's done that. I do think that probably um, it still has some distance to travel in being as useful inside the intelligence community specifically and transformative as we might have hoped. Um, I, I pin that all on me. Um, I was afraid that it would be killed in its crib mm-hmm. by the inside if I didn't get it outside fast. And so because I had the director and because I had money, I didn't spend a lot of time inside the building building constituencies. Mm. But but I would say it would be hard to not deem it a success. And that's in part because we didn't control it. So the independent board, Gilman Louie, we would have never thought of Gilman Louie. Mm-hmm. And because the government didn't over-control it, then it could become different each time it needed to become different. So I think I think you have to call it an unmitigated success, even if there's still distance to travel in public-private partnership. Is it replicable? Can a leader look at that and, and talking to you and getting the full case story mm-hmm. of what developed, can that be applied within the bureaucracy? Or is that inherently impossible because of those dynamics you just mentioned? Nah, of course, anyone can do it. Yeah. Any, you can. I, and I think, I think you have to understand what you're trying to achieve. 
you do have to let go of some things, but you have to account for the conditions that the previous rules were trying to address. So we weren't security dilettantes. Mm. You know, there were things set up to make sure that though the technology would be available, the operational use just never went across the brain barrier. So I think it can be used mostly the model of where do you want to go, what does it need to be, and then make that happen rather than saying, here's all I can do, I can't get that far. You know, when you go to the moon, you get Tang and Velcro. You don't get to the moon by building Tang and Velcro. Right. Both of us have had the pleasure, and I, and I do mean that, of of working with some truly gifted leaders, people that inspire, people that that lift up and yeah. make and make you feel like you're contributing to a mission better. Uh, I would suggest that both of us have probably had the opposite, which is working around leaders, maybe not for, but yeah. working around leaders who who were not at that level. Uh, leadership gone wrong. What leadership fails did you see as you moved up through the ranks in the intelligence community? What leadership fails did you see? And how did you apply that to your own experience so that by the time you're, let's say, the principal deputy director of national intelligence, that you're a little bit wiser because of other people's mistakes that you choose not to make? I think one, I must have been graced with some really great leaders because I don't remember any epic fails in my leaders. I think I remember seeing things where they where they could have had more. Mm-hmm. Could have had more. More what? Um, more outcome, more of what they mm-hmm. wanted, more. Because to me, it's just all—it's always about outcome, right? That's that's why we're here, and mostly, the leaders that I thought fell short of where they could have gone. It's because they couldn't figure out how to trust others to deliver what they didn't have. Was was ego at play in those cases? that they wanted to do it themselves because they thought they were better? Or was it simply a matter of they didn't know how to trust? Uh, probably both, right? Um, uh, a leadership style that was different. I've worked for leaders that thought that loyalty was total deference. Hmm. I have no idea who you have in mind. I... I <laughs> I, that that has nothing in my parlance. That is a really limited view of loyalty. Loyalty is, I am completely committed to the outcome you want, and I am going to use all my talents, which in this narrow area are more than yours, to deliver that, even if it's not something that you would have done, nor even that you understand. That is right? a more honest loyalty than pure deference. It is. Yeah. Right. It's 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 so much bigger than that. And I've seen that at almost every level. And then the second failure that probably most shapes me is leaders who chose the same person over and over again, who thought that that person and by that I mean archetype Mm -hmm. was the only thing that would succeed. I never. 
I used my team. I never chose my team. And I think we could argue that I have, over the course of my career, delivered value to my organizations. Well, we know a couple things are true. It can't possibly have been only my value. And it wasn't because I went and said, oh, I'm going to find the five most special people. No, it's that you're going to take the five people you have and you're going to say, okay, we got to get there because all the people are good. And so I think probably seeing people deciding that there were only a few that were good really shaped my view of, no, everyone's good. Bring them in, make the tent big, use them, inspire, drive them, teach them. Um, so probably those two things. That's so interesting because in the class that I'm teaching at George Mason University, a graduate seminar on intelligence and the presidency, one of the themes that we've been talking about is the the interesting relationship between the president, the director of the CIA, formerly the DCI, and the career leadership of the mm-hmm. of the agency. And there are no hard and fast truths to this kind of leadership dynamic. But one thing that tends to emerge is a pretty strong correlation, and that is the DCIs, now directors of CIA, who come in and bring a whole bunch of people with them from where they've worked before, because those are the people that have been loyal. And they come in, they displace the top leadership, they Mm -hmm. put in their own people. Those directors tend to do not nearly as well as the people who come in who have succeeded elsewhere and have people that they have those loyalty and trust relationships with, but they come in and say, no, I'm going to trust the people who are here and I'm going to get the best out of them. You can factor for all other variables and you find that that correlation tends to hold pretty well. There's something about using the people you have well if you recognize their talents and you you motivate them to contribute to that larger mission. Yeah, I, I mean, it's 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 not a perfect model because sometimes you need a specific type of talent and sometimes there's just someone who's not able to do it. But in general, uh, I think I think it I think it works. Uh, I think it delivers unexpected outcome because instead of being the leader that drives what you do. You're trusting what is done to those beneath you. You're just saying where we need to go. And so I think, to me, you get more innovation, surprising results. You teach a new generation how to bear the weight of responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just, and I think all those things are just because I saw great leaders who fell short on that mark, either of not trusting or of not using. So far, we've talked explicitly or implicitly about a lot of core ethical values. The words have come up a lot like loyalty, trust, responsibility, and certainly respect, if not the word, the concept. Mm -hmm. Did the leaders that you trained under, the people that led you, Did they explicitly talk about ethics in the workplace? Or was this something that you just picked up by osmosis and from the best managers and the best leaders, you got a sense of ethical leadership? Or did they actually make it explicit and put it on the table so it could be a focus? No, I think when I started, there was a lot less leadership training than there is now. And I really, I really like that we are much more explicit about the craft of leadership. Um, I think I think came in as the youngest daughter of 
a naval officer and his wife, and it was pretty clear who we were going to be, you know, how we were expected, you know, honor, integrity, hard work, giving something to the cause. Mm -hmm. And so I came in with that set of things, and that was what I thought was expected and what everyone was doing. What I learned is all those things allowed me to perform and that the organization, and I thought it allowed me to perform better because it, it, there are some ways to get cheap outcome. You know, you can, you can cheat the system. You can, you can do things for your own purpose, and you can get cheap outcome, but they don't tend to be persistent. Um, and so I think what I learned was that the organization actually, because it values performance and performance tends to require those sorts of things, they were synonymous. Um, so I don't know that they were explicit. I had so many leaders that developed, that demonstrated so many of the really great uh, core values um, and some and some that didn't, but it didn't matter to me because I knew they were core values anyway. <laughs> One of the things that we're, we're doing here on Chatter is we're finishing up with a random question from what we call the Chatterbox. So I'm going to walk across here, and I'm going to have you reach in. This is so exciting. I love competing. <laughs> I, I, I know. Uh, there's one reaction to this, which is fright, which is what's in the box? Why am I putting my hand in this box? What are you doing to me? The other is, oh, good. This is going to be fun. I bring it. We'll see what we actually, what we actually yeah, get. Yeah, fear should have been, maybe <laughs> should have been my reaction. <laughs> All right. The question you have pulled from the chatterbox is, what common misperception about your profession or specialty makes your blood boil? You know what I'm going to say. It's that as a discipline and as a community and as individual officers, we have any motivation other than serving the American people and keeping America and her interests safe. And I think, I think of all the things that were hard for me about my last assignment, mm -hmm. it was not people who could suggest that we weren't good enough. Heck, on any given day, I didn't think we were as good as we needed to be. But that there was anything more to that than error. That there was whether it's ideological or whether it's for personal benefit, right. just that just kind of a motivation. Just sends me over the edge. Yeah. I wish if, if every American knew my colleagues, they would say, oh my gosh, they're just like me. They want the same things. They're inspired by the same moment. And so any... Uh, inference, or worse, abject statement, that this community is motivated by anything other than keeping America safe, sends me over the edge. Because that is not what I've experienced on a single minute of a single hour of a single day of 40 years. 
never met one. Met plenty who weren't great. Never met one who wasn't trying to be great for America. Sue, thanks for joining us. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.